Okay, so I haven't made a new episode in quite a bit. And so I'm making one today. And that was mostly because um, I, I was kind of tight on time and I was quite busy this week. And that's um, a lot of that is because I was working on a new article, uh, which you could find on my LinkedIn. And you could do that by just searching Tian Lee on LinkedIn, and probably you're going to have to scroll down to like, you know, the 50th page. But, you know, nonetheless, if you want to read it, you could you could go find it over there. And so I want to kind of talk about uh, some of the news that has been happening this week. And, you know, the biggest news starts with uh, reports of President Biden wanting to uh, double the capital gains tax rate. And so the capital gains tax rate uh, plus the surcharge, which is basically an additional tax on top of the tax rate, which is kind of pointless anyways to, to not include it in the capital gains tax rate because you're going to have to be paying it anyways. And so I'm, I'm just going to be talking about the capital gains tax rate plus the surcharge because that's what you're paying. You know, it doesn't matter if you, you know, you you call a dog's tail a leg. I mean, it's still, it's still a tail. And so it doesn't matter what you call it. It's just, it's just more tax. And so the actual uh, capital gains tax plus the surcharge right now is 23.8%. And so uh, President Biden wants to increase it, uh, the maximum capital gains tax rate uh, to 43.4%. And that's the long-term capital gains tax. So that's actually higher than the short-term capital gains tax. And, you know, apparently he wants to make this so that, you know, the, the, the new taxes only apply to people with, you know, income tax over 1 million. But of course, that's also going to have, a, you know, a ton, a ton of trickle-down effects because, you know, you, you know, you can't just tax people and expect no other things to happen from it. And so, you know, this is not necessarily good for the U.S. stock market, obviously. And, you know, on that day that the report came out uh, that caused the markets to fall around 1%. And the thing is that it's only a report. So, you know, it hasn't been implemented yet. And if it is implemented, I mean, who knows? You could have markets fall 5, 10, maybe 20%. I mean, anything is possible. And so that, um, you know, points a direction for a lot of people with a lot of assets, you know, especially stocks and, and, and real estate to maybe look to move out of the United States and maybe move into, you know, places without capital gains taxes or with much lower capital gains taxes. And I was looking at some countries without capital gains taxes, and a few of them are uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland. And, and, and act, uh, like a, an interesting thing I found was that um, Malaysia also doesn't have a capital gains tax. And I'm pretty sure they don't even have a dividend tax. And so basically anybody who owns assets in Malaysia is just, is just getting no tax from their assets. They're not getting taxed from, from getting rich off of their assets. 
And, you know, I'm not exactly sure how the tax code works there. And I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe you're going to have to pay some type of, you know, tax on your dividends if you make certain amount. I don't know. But the, the, I guess you would call it the official tax rate there is 0%. And, you know, what's interesting about Malaysia is that it's not like Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, or Switzerland, because, you know, these countries are already, you know, quite well established small countries. And, you know, these countries are the ones that have implemented these, you know, good uh, policies that, that promote uh, businesses, that promote investing there. And so that's why these countries, although they're very small, they're very, you know, strong, strong, at, at least a per capita, and they have very strong economies relative to the country size. But, you know, what I saw with Malaysia is that Malaysia is an in interesting, uh, it's an interesting case because it, it also has these very, very good um, policies for investing and for uh, starting businesses. But it's not, it's not established like, you know, Hong Kong or Singapore is. And it, it doesn't, it's also not a very expensive place. Um, like the price of the cost of living, uh, the real estate there, it's, it's actually quite cheap. It's, it's kind of like the other Southeast Asian countries, which are, you know, the, 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 the stuff there, the cost of living is, is pretty cheap. And so that, um, you know, looking at that alone, you, you know, you could think that Malaysia has a pretty good, you know, economic growth prospect. And I think to a reasonable degree, it does. And so, you know, I, I might look into there a little bit, into Malaysia a little bit more. But, uh, you know, you also have to look at how are the uh, government policies there like? Um, what are all of the kind of the political risks and uh, social, cultural risks that come with, you know, different countries? So, from the you know policy from the economic policy perspective i think i think it looks great at least from taxes um but i mean i don't know because there's so many things you have to look out for when when you're going to a especially a small and undeveloped country or underdeveloped country there's many many risks but your return is also much much bigger and again these South, Southeast Asian countries, I think are a lot less overvalued than countries like United States and especially the developed economies because you know everyone's pouring their money right now into developed economies, especially the United States into US equities. But well, I mean, the, the emerging markets have kind of done pretty decently lately, but uh, I, th I think there's, just, there's still a lot more room for these emerging market uh, equities to grow relative to U.S. equities to grow because just, I mean, the whole value um, of these, 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 these emerging market equities are a lot cheaper. They're, they're a lot cheaper. The price is much lower and their, their earnings uh, relative to price is lower and their future prospects, if, you, you know, if you're predicting future earnings, they don't look much worse than, than the United States and they might look better as, as well. Um, if you're looking at percentage growth. So I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the emerging market economies could uh, benefit a lot. But, 
something you have to look out for right now, at least in the short term, is India. Because India, you know, the COVID, the whole COVID situation there is just placing a huge, huge burden on their whole economy and their whole political and, and social situation. Because, you know, India is a very, very tight place. And, um, you know, they're not implementing like super rough, uh, like authoritarian policies like China did, uh, which worked quite well in controlling COVID. But then, of course, you know, you have to give that power to your government. And th that's not something that the U.S. would do. That's not something that, you know, Canada, that, that Australia, Europe, it's not something that these countries would, would be able to pull on their citizens. But, you know, a country with a more powerful government like China could do. And, you know, sometimes with anything, you have a cost and a benefit. And, you know, most of the time when, when you have your government this powerful, you have a lot of risks associated with, you know, a lot of things that, that, that just are, are pretty obvious. And, you know, your government can do pretty much anything against you, but sometimes you also have the benefits of these. And, and, and um, if your government uses them correctly, these powers correctly, then it, it, could, it could actually benefit your country. And so the problem with actually giving your government too much power is over the long term, you're going to get some corrupt you know, government officials, you're going to get some corrupt politicians, and these guys are just going to destroy the whole country. Uh, because it takes a long time to build a good country, but it could be destroyed very, very quickly, and very, very easily. And so big risk, big return type thing. Uh, if you're just looking at total aggregate efficiency, and, and, and um, just the total benefit. And if you're not taking a look at just kind of the individual freedom. But I, I think the individual freedom is important there as well. But, you know, talking about individual freedom and going back to the, the doubling the capital gains taxes, I mean, that, that's kind of scary because the capital gains tax becomes higher than the personal income tax if you're going to double it. And I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. If you're going to have a capital gains tax that's higher than a personal income tax, although I don't think the, per, the, the, you know, the personal income tax should be that high, and I don't think really any tax should be that high, but I think um, what's more scary than these high taxes is that they're not going to be able to pay off nearly what the US you know, government owes and what it's borrowing from you know, in 2020, because you, you could have 40, you know, 43% capital gains tax, you could have 80% taxes, it doesn't matter. There, there's still no way that you could generate enough tax revenue to actually be able to pay off your existing debt and to pay off all the money you borrowed. Because I mean, I, you know, at a certain point, if uh, you raise the tax rate so high, then you're, you're just going to be diminishing your tax returns. And, um, you know, that's, that's the Art Laffer um, kind of 
equilibrium graph type thing. But I don't I don't want to get so much into the whole <laughs> the whole the whole uh, details. And I want to just just wrap this up this little part up by saying that I, I don't think that actual taxes are going to be the most dangerous or the most painful thing you have to go through. And I think they're, well, to some degree necessary uh, to fund all the spending. And it's, you're going to be taxed anyways, because if the spending has been done, the taxing cannot be avoided by the nation as a whole, unless if you default, that is, which um, a lot of it is going to be just you defaulting on your own on your own central banks, which wouldn't really do anything. Um, and you're also defaulting on foreigners, which would do something. And so unless if the US government's gonna default, which I don't think is gonna happen anytime soon, then it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter how much you raise the taxes. You're gonna have to pay a lot more than the taxes that you're already paying. And you know, I don't think the US government should default on their debt, at least not now. If you want to look at the benefits of the United States, if you want to look at it from a perspective of, of having maximum benefit for the U.S., because, I mean, if you're going to default right now, I think that's the more responsible thing to do. But if you could default in the future, that I mean that that you're you're benefiting a lot more because think of it as as a consumer. If you have a thousand dollars on your credit card and you don't want to pay back so you declare bankruptcy, well, why not do it when you have 1,500 or 2,000, right? Why would you do it with less money? Why would you declare bankruptcy when you have less money when you could do it with more money? And so that, I mean, that makes sense, except it's, you know, the foreigners are going to be a lot more mad. And what's going to happen is the dollar is going to drop a lot more if that actually ends up happening than if you had less debt. But you know, regardless, if you want to somehow get your debt problem dealt with, you're going to have to just demolish your currency anyways. And that's not necessarily exclusive to the United States. It's you know a global thing. Now, the US is most at risk, not necessarily let, let me reword that. Reword that. It's not necessarily the highest risk country, but it has the most to lose. You know, it's got the reserve currency, uh, which which just allows the U.S. to have these these massive trade deficits. And to some degree, it's almost impossible for the U.S. to not have these uh, massive trade deficits because the U.S. does have the reserve currency. And so you you kind of have a well, you know, it's obviously a benefit of having the reserve currency, but at the same time, you have to be constantly kind of running these trade deficits because other countries need U.S. dollars. And so they're, they're going to just offer you their stuff for such low prices that you can't not buy it. And, you know, think, think of it as you have this magical money, whatever money that's in your wallet, it just turns into to magical money that everybody wants. And so now, whenever you go into the grocery store or any store, everybody's giving you 90% off discounts. Well, you're gonna be buying everything with your money. And so that's kind of the case with uh, the US when you have a reserve currency, except it's not 90% off. It might be like 
you know, 30 or 20 percent off, but it, they're, they're kind of offering you stuff at a discount and they're, they're doing that a lot of it by reducing the value of their own currency. And so, you know, you have, you have stuff like, you know, you have uh, countries like China who are debasing their own currencies to basically let Americans buy Chinese goods for cheaper prices, except, you know, and, and, and you have, you had Trump calling that, uh, you know, like currency manipulation or something, which, I mean, it is currency manipulation, but I mean, every country does it, but, it, you know, it's for different purposes. So instead of, you know, just pegging your, your currency to another currency, I mean, like central banks around the world are controlling the, the prices of their currencies. You know, they're changing their interest rates, they're, they're you know, changing the money supply, uh, they're, well, they're increasing credit debt. And so, I mean, every country in the world who operates in a fiat system basically manipulates their currencies. But um, this does not end well if you have so much debt and you're, if you're constantly running all these large trade deficits. And especially, um, I mean, it might, it might benefit the markets in the short term. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, what happens when COVID is gone? Uh, and what happens when, when, you know, the markets return to normal? Because, I mean, it's such a, it's such a, how would you say it? It's such a crazy, um, crazy thing because the markets are, are doing incredibly well right now. I mean, obviously, and I, and I read an article, uh, I think it was the, the Bank of America, uh, released this 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 study that 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 basically claimed that in the past five months, more money has been poured into equities, globally speaking, than in the last twelve years. And and if you look at the fundamentals of companies and of earnings and of you know whatever valuation metric you want to value companies, in the past five months. The companies has not the companies have not increased, you know their 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 fundamentals have not increased more than they have in the past twelve years. It's just absurd how much money has been poured into these equities, and so I mean eventually, um, once COVID ends and, and once the economy gets back in shape, the the central banks around the world are going to have to move back and, and change up their policies and. Uh, basically go back to, well, try raising interest rates, which might not necessarily be successful, but at least I think they will to some degree try doing it. And, uh, you know, I live in Canada and um, apparently the Bank of Canada right now is looking to uh, raise interest rates maybe in the next year. And so, you know, the, the Bank of Canada has slightly turned a bit more hawkish whereas uh, Jerome Powell at the Fed is, is still quite dovish. But anyways, you know, after COVID, I mean, and after all these lockdowns and after um, just, just everything gets sort of back together, except a lot more debt, you're not really going to have much of an excuse 
uh, for the central bankers to, to keep interest rates this low, to keep on uh, throwing out their, their, their monetary policies. But of course, the governments want to keep on spending. So they're going to just <laughs> throw out all these fiscal policies, you know, regardless of, of how the economy is doing. But I think, I think uh, that matters as well. So they might cut some of their stimulus checks. I mean, who knows if there's going to be a fourth round of them. But if there are, I mean, why raise taxes anyways, if you're just going to throw money back at people? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, because right now all the poor people are going on Robin Hood and making all of their income there. So, I mean, you're kind of just taxing the poor. And if you're taxing Robin Hood, then you're kind of just taxing the man who taxes the poor. And so, I mean, but once you get after COVID, after all of this gets back together, when uh, the central banks try to raise rates, the market might uh, be affected in quite a negative way. And, you know, especially once the whole international trade system, because, uh, you know, right now the U.S. is running huge trade deficits and probably the bigger, uh, def- bigger deficits than it's ever run. And, what, and, 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 you know, I think a bit earlier, uh, Trump came back and, and somewhere on television or something. And he said, uh, you know, this is like Biden's fault. But I mean, it was, it's kind of ironic because, you know, when he, he ended off his presidential term, you know, the trade deficits were biggest, uh, were the biggest in U.S. history, except, you know, they're just bigger now um, because we're further into the future. And, I, and, you know, I think maybe some of Biden's policies worsened the trade deficit, but it, it's not like the trajectory of, 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 you know, Trump's trade deficits were very good. And so, I mean, he obviously didn't really win the trade war, um, which for some reason, some people think he won. Because, I mean, if you win the trade war, then maybe your deficits aren't huge. And he basically stopped at, uh, uh, you know, his first phase one and, uh, you know, like canceled because of uh, the whole, the whole Chinese coronavirus thing. And so when, when everything there gets back together, you know, the U.S. might have to start importing again or exporting again, which would put even more demand on, you know, stuff like commodities, because right now what you have is, you have such a big, um, you have so many companies with so much capital and so much access to capital, so much access to debt, that these companies have to do something with the money. And so either these guys could, you know, buy back shares, or, you know, pay them out in dividends, which right now is less than favorable, because, you know, Biden wants to raise the capital gains tax. So, Right now, buying back shares is less than favorable. But you know, let's say they wanted to pay them out in dividends. That's a possibility. But some companies might, and a lot of companies, I think, might look to try to you know buy into or, or produce new goods and services, or build new infrastructure. You know, Biden's trying to do that with his new two trillion dollar plan. And, you know, who knows how many trillions it's going to be. But uh, as of now, it's, it's somewhere around two trillion. 
And so, I mean, with all this production of new infrastructure and all of these goods and services and, and you know, consumers uh, getting all of these uh, food and, and, and goods and services, that's going to take a lot of commodities because those are the building blocks of production. And, and you know, if you want to build a TV, you want to build a car, if you want to eat food, I mean, you're using commodities you know, agriculture or metals or whatever you need, it, go, it comes back to commodities. But if you look at the commodities inventory, they're shrinking and they're not very, uh, they're not looking like they're increasing. And so these companies are probably going to have to pay a lot more for commodities in the future. And when they do that, well, you, you kind of have a situation where the, the prices of, you know, their expenses, the company's expenses are going to be so high that they're going to have to pass them down to their customers. Now, that's if they can. And that's why a lot of tech companies just do so poorly during inflation because they can't pass down their costs. They can't pass down their, their rising costs because, you know, nobody wants to pay extra money for, you know, a lot of this technology. But some, some consumer staples, you know, if, if you look at Walmart or something, it, you know, it doesn't matter because you have to eat, you have to buy clothes, you have to just buy your basic needs. And so, you know, it doesn't matter how much Walmart charges you as long as your competitor, as long as Walmart's competitors aren't charging less because they can't afford to, then, you, you know, <laughs> your only pick is Walmart. So you have to basically buy anything that they and buy stuff that at any price that they offer to you. And the same goes with stuff like utilities, except, you know, the stuff with utilities, it's, it's heavily regulated. And so they, the utility companies can't just charge, you know, an absurd price for their stuff. Um, and, and so, but I think, I think that they, the regulators will always allow them to come out as profitable. So they won't make uh, the utility companies uh, be able to charge so little that, they, that they're losing money. But with all of this, I, I wanna get to the point where I think the market after COVID is gonna be a lot worse than it is pre-COVID. And you know, the, re you know, the reason is because just a lot of this, these monetary policies are going to slow down. A lot of these fiscal policies are going to slow down. And, you know, the vaccine was, was apparently great news for the markets, but so was the, just the, 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 the massive amounts of uh, stimulus, market stimulus that came with COVID. And so basically right now we're in a situation where COVID is great news for the markets and the COVID vaccine which ends COVID is great news for the markets. Now, the point is the policies, the stimulus is, is, is the great news for the markets, not, not COVID or the COVID vaccine, except when COVID ends, what you're going to get is stimulus ends or at least slows down or, or, or becomes smaller. And, you know, the markets right now are just heavily reliant on stimulus to continue increasing. Now, 
an important distinction is that the real economy is, is not getting better and it's different from the markets. It's different from stock markets, different from the real estate, uh, real estate. And, you know, it, it's supposed to be similar and it's normally similar, except when you have just this massive wealth redistribution. And that's basically what monetary and fiscal policies are, just wealth distribution. When you have all of this, the real economy is still getting worse, but the financial economy, the, the, the markets, the assets are getting better.